Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable. I have not met all of you. My name is Luke. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors at Legacy and get to preach. And I'm excited about today's sermon. We're going to be in a few key passages, but the one that would be most helpful for you to be in in your own Bible is in Jeremiah 2. So you just open up your Bible and turn left, and you will eventually get to the J's. And Jeremiah 2 is going to be a helpful passage for all of us today, I think, as we are working through our series on how to grow. As disciples, how to change. As disciples, how to grow, how to move past certain sins, how to become a more transformed version of ourselves. And today is going to be helpful. And I, the, the more I look over the notes and the more I look at the passages, I realize more and more that I have probably preached this sermon in some shape or form several times from the pulpit. And it's simply because it's a keystone marker for us as a people. Um, We do say we're a gospel-centered church, as Charlie had said up here earlier, that we are centered around the gospel. But listen, if we don't know what that really means, it's just mildly annoying, right? To just say you're gospel-centered and not know what that really means. And we're going to talk about how being centered around the gospel affects how we change, affects how we grow. And I would make the case I don't think you can without it. Without the gospel, we might change our behavior somewhat, but our hearts won't really change. And so the big question I'm carrying into our passage today is, does it really matter how we change or just that we change? Let me, does the path matter? Do you have to show your work like in school? Does it matter really how you get from A to B? I mean, we've all seen people that are so lost in an addiction or a sin or they're handling some issue and it has really swamped their life. It has overwhelmed them and changed for them. From our point of view, it looks impossible. The path back, the journey back, their change. It looks like it's just never going to happen. And maybe that's you, by the way. Maybe you're the one that that's the problem with. You've grown to love something way too much You cannot fathom life without it. Life without it feels like a hell on earth, in fact. Or maybe that's not you today, but maybe you love somebody. You do life tightly with somebody where this is the case. Let me just give you the punchline first. It's not just important that change happens. It's very important how it happens, right? So let's look at Jeremiah 2.13. This is going to be a great passage. Isaiah will be another one later on if you're fast navigating your Old Testament. But in Jeremiah 2.13, we see a prophet telling the people of Israel this. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out, that just means carved, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Okay, now listen, today, in today's world, we don't really have cisterns in Knox. None of you own a cistern unless you own cattle, maybe, right? But nobody's got one of these at their house. But in the third world, they're everywhere. Uh, The last time I was in what I would call the third world would be in Haiti, and you would have one of these if you were wealthy. They're not a well. Wells are going to pull water mostly from the ground. A cistern's probably going to pull it from the sky a little bit more. It's going to collect rainwater from a roof, even from the ground, to be honest with you, but somehow will conduit the collected water into a receptacle. Today, they're mostly plastic, but back, back then, they were stone. Here's the thing about cistern water. Not the greatest quality, right? Because of what it touched last to get to the receptacle. I don't know if you ever did this as a kid. 
but as a kid, I was so lazy when I'd be outside playing with my friends. I couldn't foresee running inside and getting a glass and getting water and drinking it and putting the glass down and running back outside. That was too much work, so I just crank on the hose outside and put the hose in my mouth and drink from the hose. Anyone do that, right? I did, I didn't even occur to me there might be things in the hose, right? I just put it in my mouth and drank, and guess what it tasted like? Hose, right? It tasted like hose or Dasani water or wherever you're at in that debate. <laughs> back then, the water would taste like worms, dirt, whatever it touched last. But hey, it's better than dying of thirst, right? That's the theme of a good cistern. You're not dying of thirst. Here's the problem with cisterns, especially ancient ones. They leak. Sometimes they're pervasive leakers. It'd be very possible in the ancient world that you would walk up to fill up your Keurig in the morning and there would be no water in the cistern. And everyone in Jeremiah's day knew that broken cisterns were no joke at all. It was something that was very difficult for them. In fact to try to make them out of rock was their best attempt to keep from having one that would leak. Clay wouldn't work. They would actually, hear me now, carve stone. Hew it out of stone just for the hopes that it would not let them down. And even then it didn't always work. You see, the principle for what God really is saying through Jeremiah to the people of Israel is that you and I today, just like they did, we would build our own preservation out of the strongest stuff we could find, only to have it leak. Israel abandoned God for idols of the land that advertised some sort of glory or comfort or security, some kind of good in this world, but it could never deliver. It would just leak over and over again. Even today, we will build and carve idols out of the strongest stuff we can find. We'll use silicon chips, LinkedIn pages, streaming services, we'll use money, we'll use our kids, the strongest things we can get our hands on. They promise to bring us heaven on earth if we worship and devote ourselves to them. They promise to help us, I guess, navigate out of hell on earth. And anything that promises to move us from a functional hell into a functional heaven, as we've said in many classes here, is just a functional savior. That's what a cistern is. That's what Jeremiah is pointing at. And so today what I want to look at is how healthy and growing disciples are growing, not because they're building better cisterns with the hope that maybe this one won't leak because we're building it out of even better things, but because we abandon them totally and go to a God of living waters, as it says in Jeremiah. Because listen, we're no different than Jeremiah's audience. We're actually more of the same. Right? We're very, very, very good at building functional saviors. So let's look at Isaiah 44. This is going to be about three or four verses right in the middle of it. Also, a man talking to the nation of Israel who are really good at building their own saviors. And this is what it says in verse 13. Isaiah 44, 13. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have anything with you. The carpenter stretches a line and he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bakes bread, 
And he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. He falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. Sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous. He cut it down. He knows it's not a God. Apparently he planted it. He watched it grow. He chopped it down. He carved it. He burned half of it, right, to to eat over. He knows it's not a God. It seems ridiculous what he's doing right here, and that's the way you're supposed to feel when you read it. You're supposed to see the, the oddity of it. But, but here is something that we pull from a passage like this. We could take something that is amoral, like, like a phone or a job or a piece of wood, even a good thing we can make an ultimate thing out of. We could say, you can deliver me. This can deliver me. I'm going to worship you, commit myself to you, that you would deliver me from my cold, from my hunger. Now, here's the problem with a idol issue. Just because we delete an idol from our life, it doesn't mean our affections or our hungers go away as well. I mean, they stick around, don't they? You were created to love things. You were created to worship things, adore things. You were, you were created to be committed. You were created to be devoted. Can't just erase that, right? Can't get rid of that. Can't just erase your affections. So usually what we do when we try to grow absent the gospel is we will trade idols, one cistern for the other. Maybe the new idol is a little bit more socially tolerable, right? You've seen this. You've seen it applauded in society. Somebody who is addicted to food is now addicted to exercise. Good for them. Good for them. Look how great they're doing, right? Someone who was addicted to meth is now addicted to entrepreneurial endeavors, addicted to money. And we look at that and we say, look what they did with their life. But friend, they're just as enslaved. They just picked a different cistern. They just picked a different idol. Gospel level change is where our affections are rightly aimed. Rightly aimed. Not from one idol to another, but from idols to the Lord. So yeah, When we say gospel-centered, what we mean is that the gospel saves us. That is true. But the gospel also sustains us in our change efforts as disciples. The gospel is good to break you from the prison of idol worship once and for all. And then the gospel is also helpful to do it every single day. It's not something we mature beyond. Martin Luther has this famous quote. He says, to progress, which is what we're learning about right now, how to grow as a Christian, how to grow as a disciple, to progress is to always begin again. And that's what he's talking about. To change, to grow, is to go right back to the start. And that's hopefully what we've tried to say and have been effective in many times in many different sermons, hopefully every single week. Gospel-centered as a phrase, as a term, has been overused in the landscape of the local church, especially in America. We see it all the time. It's just been kind of inserted in and before every little thing that we use to describe the church. We have a gospel-centered men's ministry. We have a gospel-centered preaching. We have, we have gospel-centered worship. It's just the thing we've put in there, and it's kind of lost a lot of value. And it's actually starting to pick up and accrue a lot of criticism from people. 
as if it's a 21st century fad, something that our current church has made up. Like, like, like it's the keto diet of Christianity, right? That it, you, you were gospel-centered, but that doesn't mean anything, and we're moving beyond it. But friends, listen, it is not a fad, and it's not something we invented. It's about as cutting edge as Paul. I mean, we have Paul telling the Colossian church, and this isn't going to be in Colossians 2.6. Therefore, he says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, continue in him. That's what Paul is saying. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Tells another church with the same gospel cracks in, in Galatia. Galatians 3, 1. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's fooled you? Who cast a spell on you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you're now being perfected by the faith? Okay, here is a church that actually moved from a gospel-centered beginning to a man-powered continuation. They began by the Spirit, but now by the flesh, they're going to perfect themselves. Change. The change we all want, it begins not by what you and I must do, but by what God has already done. There has to be this vertical start point in our change and our growth efforts. Before we roll up our own sleeves to get busy on our own change, there has to be a settled resolve that God has done the work. That's where we start. To progress, we begin again. The opposite of this is what many of us grew up with, and that is to begin with your own work your own performance, your own behavior in hopes that God would do something for you, right? That's different entirely. This is what we would call a contractual relationship with God, a contract that we hope to set up where we will trade efforts with God under certain parameters that maybe we both benefit, right? Maybe you've prayed the prayer in some place of desperation. God, if you get me out of this, right? Have you ever, have you ever felt that? Maybe if you haven't even uttered it as a prayer. God, if you get me out of this, oh, I will do these 19 things, right? I was listening to a podcast of two super famous people talking back and forth, and one, this has been the last couple weeks, one of them was talking about how he got in big trouble, and he knew in this moment my life can pivot for good, or it could pivot, and I could end up in prison for the rest of my life. And he said, I sat there on that bench, and I just, God, if you get me out of this, I'll be a force for good in this world. I will do good. I will be generous. You know, he starts listing all these very superficial things, right? And I don't think he's lived up to a single one of them, if you ask me. But that was the contract he set up with God. If you get me out of this, and I remember listening to it thinking, that's a bit ridiculous, right? That you would have that view of God. But it's, it's common. It's common. But you know what you could do? You could flip it. You can flip it. Let's say it is not a place of desperation, but a place of suffering. How many times have you caught yourself saying, even slightly, but after all I've done for you, Lord, after all I've done for you, and this is what happens to me, it's the same contract. It's the same contractual way of looking at the Lord. See, if, if you do this for me, Lord, that, that says I will pay you back. I will be indebted to you. But if we find ourselves praying prayers that say, after all I have done for you, Lord, then it means that you should be indebted to me. You should be in debt to me. You need to pay me back for all the great things I have done. You see, contractual Christianity allows us 
to be in control, to be the star and the centerpiece of the gospel story, and it puts God in debt to us. Can you start to see why the path of change is more important than just the destination on its own? Why it's important how we change? Man, I've known plenty of people, very clean people, with clean attitudes and clean habits, with a manicured marriage, a manicured life, who internally, they want to be glorious. They're full of dead men's bones. I think if Jesus was satisfied with this, the Pharisees would have been applauded instead of pegged as the villains that they were, right? That's what we see in the New Testament. I mean, they were the most behaved in all of Whoville. I mean, when it comes to obedience and behavior, still today they top the charts, still today. You see, gospel change celebrates God as the centerpiece of history, one who is not in debt to anyone. He is the living water of Jeremiah, and he is the true savior of Isaiah. He wins us by the power of his Holy Spirit, and the same Holy Spirit as we've seen over the last two weeks is when it transforms us every single day as we change. He liberates us by the gospel, sustains us by the gospel. So we, we will begin with his work before we roll up our sleeves to change ourselves. This is why it's important that we understand the gospel is not a story of new rules, but of freedom from idols. Right? I think the church has rightly gained the reputation in America, but particularly the Deep South, I would say, the church has gotten this image, at least from the people who are far from Christ, that if they just drop their old rules at the door, then we'll, we'll be good to give them some new rules once they get in here. They're just going to change some rules. Leave your rule book and your playbook out there because we've got one in here and it's going to work better for you. But listen, the gospel's not good news if we're just exchanging rules. If we're exchanging contracts, the gospel's not good anymore. The gospel never advertises a life of trading one jail cell for another. It promises freedom from all prisons. It promises freedom from all idols. Romans 6.6, 6, we see Paul saying this. We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's a funny phrase, isn't it? To be crucified with somebody. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. There it is again, the same term. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Why is it saying that? What, what does it mean to be crucified in Christ? You know, before Jesus, idols, Sin held power over us. We, we were effectively unable to change. The spell was on us, and we just could not slip out from underneath it. It might change our behavior, but we couldn't change our worship. We were unable to without the gospel. And then Christ comes and liberates us once and for all, and then liberates us every day. To progress means to begin again. Right? We do know that. But this odd phraseology of being crucified with Christ just means that sin has no power over Jesus, so it has no power over you. You're not indebted to the flesh anymore. You might be tempted, but you're not overpowered. That's what that means. But we still have broken cisterns today. Right? And, and these broken cisterns are made out of the strongest stuff we could find. The, the most 
strong, impermeable, and bulletproof things that we can find, we will make an idol out of. And we will do it so that we can secure comfort, security, power, approval. We make our own saviors to carry us from our own functional hell into our own functional heaven. And we do this when we don't believe that God is enough. And that's going to be a key phrase, not enough. We use this tool off and on in the history of this church. It's a tool that's a little bit sharper and more well used than some of our other tools. We focus on it in some of our classes, the one that we'll do in the later spring on how to change. We'll go in detail on this, but we call it the four G's. God is good, he is great, he is glorious, and he is gracious, right? And every sin is a place of unbelief in one of those statements, right? If God is not good, then I've gotta find good elsewhere to be comfortable. I have to. If God is not great enough, then I have to be in control myself to gain the security I need. If God is not glorious enough, I'll need to be impressive and powerful in this world. If God is not gracious enough, then I'm going to need to prove myself. I'm going to need to be worthy, both before man, myself, and God. But every sin we encounter is a statement and an indictment against what God can and cannot supply. Every single one. Every sin is the accusation where we look God square in the eyes and we say, you are not enough. You're not enough. I am doing this or not doing this because you are not enough. And then we turn and see the landscape of idols. And they're all saying, I could give you what you want. I can be enough. I could supply the delta between your heart and what you're getting but it will require your affection, your devotion, and your worship. So I'd like to break these down, the four things. They're not, it's not a comprehensive, again, it's a good tool. We've used it as a tool before, we'll probably always use it as a tool, but it's good to break it down and go into detail. You're gonna struggle with all four. You don't want to hear these like it's the Enneagram, right? Where you might be more one than the other. We all struggle hunting all four of these types of idols to supply our life. But I think it's important to break it down because you cannot put a sin down if you don't even know why you're picking it up. We never even really think about that. Why did we even pick up that sin to begin with? Why are we addicted to that thing to begin with? It's important to know what it is we don't believe about God that provoked us to move in that direction instead of this direction. It's important. I like to look at the idol of comfort, where we say with our lives and sometimes with our mouth that, God, you are not good enough, so I must seek comfort elsewhere. Heaven on earth means ease. Hell on earth is discomfort. And here's what's interesting. We were actually made to desire comfort. We were crafted to like good things. The garden where Adam and Eve were, they were surrounded by good things, plenty of comfort. We were made to love that. As Ecclesiastes says, heaven is in the heart of mankind. It's encoded in us to want this. But when we look around and we doubt that God is good enough, we will hunt good out somewhere. We'll find it in food or scrolling or substance or gaming or anything that promises escape from the hellish discomfort that we call Tuesday. Anything that will get us out of this place that we are in. But here's the thing. When you try to change When you try to put down this idol of comfort, it cannot mean, change cannot mean just getting rid of things. It can't just mean taking stuff to calm or unplugging things or unsubscribe. It can't mean that. You will still hunger for comfort. That desire doesn't go away. 
You're looking for good. It doesn't leave just because you deleted TikTok or went on a diet or something like that. It, it's still going to be there. This is why, for many of you, you've always felt overpowered, like you've had no control over this hunt for good things. Change actually begins when we see the gospel as the story of ultimate comfort brought to the ultimately miserable, the fatigued, the needy, the heavy laden. When we see the goodness of God, that he is the good above all goods, then we stop subsisting. In fact, maybe even become bored with the, with the goods of the world becoming our everything that will deliver us from this hell on earth, which is just a cistern that leaks really fast. That's an idol of comfort, and I think it's probably alive in every one of us to some degree. There's another one, an idol of power. God is not glorious enough, so I must be glorious. This will manifest in a very different kind of behavior, one of overpowering, manipulating, controlling events, taking credit, being right, being righteous, dominating. You get the picture. Here's the thing. We're created to be attracted to glory. We're created to actually radiate in the glory of God, to be so magnetized to the glory of God that we are forever satisfied. That's how we're created, right? But we can't find it if we don't believe that God is sufficient, so we start looking elsewhere. Ever meet somebody? Hey, have you ever met someone who is enslaved just to the need to be an authority at all times? Not to just be right all the time, but to be righteous all the time, always demanding, always right, always dominating the moment? That's a person that's struggling with this. But let me tell you what change can and cannot look like. Change for the hungry person, it cannot mean just shrinking into corners. It cannot mean not fighting for what is right. It cannot mean not being vocal. Change begins, however, where we see the gospel as God's story of glory as it manifests through the person of Jesus. The true glory, the glory we were always created to come into contact with, is found in Christ and Christ alone. That his glory is sufficient, so sufficient that when we try to hunt and wear it ourselves, it's boring. It's boring. And you can tell when you're growing in this, this idol of power, smashing the idol of power, you can tell it's starting to take effect whenever you feel this freedom to be wrong, freedom to be disagreed with. You're fine with it. Fine to be lost in the shuffle of opinions, free to come in last, to be anonymous, to lose credit to somebody else that didn't deserve it, right? You're free. You're free. Because we are so enamored with the glory of God, we're bored of the idea of seeking it for ourselves. I think that's probably alive in every single one of us. Or the idol of security. God is not strong enough, so I must be in control. I find myself in this, in this camp a little bit more than the others, although I could see all of them firing on all cylinders in my life in a lot of moments. But this is more of a need to be in control where we become infatuated with things like stability, a stable income, a promised retirement, a secure future, absolutely no sacrificial living. Hey, listen, this is what you will find enraged and inflamed in many people who just refuse to give sacrificially of their money or of their time. They won't do it. They won't do it. Because in their mind, and I understand the logic, if I give, I won't have, and if I won't have, I am not safe. More for you is less for my silo. So heaven on earth for a person like this means having all your bases covered, not just today, but for the next 30 years. 
For the next 50 years in hell here is being exposed, being out on a limb, living a little risky. You know, we'll see anxiety in this personality a lot too. That'll be a big manifestation. Anxiety is a symptom of this idol hunter. Look, because what anxiety does is it unsteadies us to look out for number one above all things. Right? So change, change has to look different than maybe trading one cistern that promises safety for another one. I mean, I'll tell you, there is no remedy in pretending that we don't care about solid ground. You're supposed to care about stability and safety. Again, it's in us from the beginning where we were safest in the presence of God, walking with him in the cool of the day, where we are most secure under his, under his watchful and loving eye with no sin. We're meant to be this way. We're always meant to look for security, but we're always meant to also be frustrated when we cannot find it anywhere else but in him. Change has to begin when we recognize the gospel is a story of ultimate safety, ultimate security. When mankind, listen, and this is one of the things I've had to preach to my heart a bazillion times, that when mankind was most unsteadied, most nervous, most anxious, is when we had a king who was dead in a tomb. And in that same moment, when we should have all been spinning out of control, God had never been more in control. It's fascinating to me. The Easter story is probably the antidote for the anxious soul. If you're anxious in this room, Easter's your gig because it preaches something to your heart that your heart really needs to hear. Change begins when you and I can say God is in control. So I'm free to be out of control. Amidst the people who are wildly out of control, making decisions that are out of control, where everything is out of control and yet I can still sleep. I could take a deep breath. I could wear a joy that's looking to forever. I think all of us have a level of this idol hunting in our lives. I want to look at the idol of approval. It's the last one I will look at today. Where God is not gracious enough, so we have to prove ourselves. Now this will manifest in a little bit different of a way because it's a quest. It's a quest to be recognized for our position. It's, it's a fight for allegiance, for inclusion to be followed, to be loved. It's all about our appearance. Heaven on earth for this idol hunter is just being approved and accepted. And the more places we can be approved and accepted, well, the more comfortable we are, the more validated we find ourselves. Hell, however, is being last place. Hell is being measured but rejected. Hell is being unfollowed and canceled. You know, it's encoded in our soul to want approval and acceptance, to hunger, to be loved at all costs, to be brought close despite who we really are. That's in all of us. The thing is, is we just don't believe God can give it to us. We start looking for it here. And this is why humanity ultimately will identify with what they do for a living or their moral views. All right, we call it virtue signaling or our sexuality, or our views on sexuality, any flag we can unfurl above our heads and say, this is me. Hey, this is me. Just in case you wanted to know, this is who I am. I hope you love me. This is where I find inclusion. Change does not come, however, by discounting in a condescending way what other people think. I, I know you've heard it. It smacks of maturity. It's not mature. The person that says, you know what? I could give a rip what people think about me. 
I don't even care. It looks like, wow, they've really cracked the code, man. They've kind of risen above what other people think. How do I get what they're, how do I get that, man? I don't want to care what people think about me. Listen, that's not even healthy. It's not even healthy. One of the things that Paul tells Timothy whenever they're looking at bringing in elders in different churches is that you need to be well thought of by outsiders. It's okay to be cognizant of how other people see you or else that makes you a weirdo. You'll have some sort of a, a diagnosis like professionally for that for a person that just doesn't give a rip what the world thinks about them. We should care how others see us, but it should not place us in a place of living hell or heaven depending on their verdict. It should not have that level of power over us. The gospel changes us by communicating to you and me that we're approved, we're accepted. In fact, we are most included we are most included in that pool of community that is most important, the family of God. We are adopted into a family that we can't be unadopted from. We're brought close to a king and a kingdom that we're not going to get kicked out of. We're going to dine at a table and our seat is saved. You're accepted. And there's just simply nothing that mankind can add to that acceptance where we go, oh, God, thank you, God. That really scratched my itch. I mean, I was really excited about being approved in your family right? But that 98th like on my last post, that's what got it done. doesn't exist. You're going to know that you're changing in this category whenever you feel a freedom in being anonymous. Free to be forgotten, not invited. You're free. Sure, it's nice to be recognized and applauded, but friend, it does not bring you heaven. You, you want to talk about a leaky cistern. Man, I mean, the cisterns we build, even out of the strongest stuff we can find, you see how easy they leak? You see how easy they leak? There's nothing for us there. Jeff Vanderstelt has a famous quote where he says, repentance is not a change of behavior, it's a change of your God. It's not a change of your behavior, it's a change of your God. And we said this many times in the last two weeks, that our behavior is downstream of our affections doesn't go the other way, right? So we as a church, we have a lot of room to repent under passages like this for building cisterns out of the strongest things we can find and in the meantime, abandoning the living waters, bailing on the one who gives the truest meaning to our lives. We have an opportunity to abandon false saviors, chunks of wood. We have an ability to do that today. They don't have a spell over us. They lie. They cannot satisfy. I'm not telling you to go quit your job or give your TV away or delete your profile. But I might be telling you that, right? I might be. That might be what you need to do. Because abandoning idols is not easy. If you think it's easy to put an idol down, that means you didn't abandon the idol. That's what that means. There's nothing easy about it. William Grinnell, an old Puritan, he took one passage in Ephesians and wrote about 1,200 pages on it. And me and several other pastors in this area have read it. And when he gets to the place where he talks about putting idols down, these are his words. He says, soul, take the lust, which is the child dearest to your heart, your Isaac, the sin from which you intend to gain the greatest pleasure, lay hands on it and offer it up. Pour out its blood before me. Run the sacrificing knife into the very heart of it and do it joyfully. That sounds 
gory and drastic and crazy, doesn't it? I mean, this is the kind of guy that you could take in small doses. I can already tell and I've never met him, right? But I like what he's saying. I love everything that he is saying because he's saying that thing that you intend to take the greatest glory from, it's a painful, excruciating, and intentional sacrificing of that. And we can do it with joy. Joyfully. Why? This doesn't sound like a very joyful moment to put down that thing that has brought us the most pleasure. It's joyful because we get to finally walk away from broken cisterns. Finally. Finally. We can get... We can see that God is good and he is graceful and he is great and he is glorious. And we could drink deeply of him and stop being ripped off. Stop living a boring life. There's so much room for you and me to repent when we come square with passages like this. And listen, if you're here, if you're watching online and you're not even sure about Christ, you're not even sure about your salvation, you're not sure about anything, Revelation 21, there's a beautiful passage where John, he says this in verse 5 of chapter 21. He says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of water of life without payment. That's important for you to know. The living waters that replace all broken cisterns. The living waters that totally satisfy us, make our hearts content. It comes without payment. Which means your deeds, your law following, your rules, your behavior, your performance. You could leave that at the door. And inside you find grace. God's favor for you, totally despite you. God's mercy over you, despite what you deserve. That's what you find instead of the baggage of our performance and our legalism. This is the greatest news in the world. It's without payment, and yet it will cost you absolutely everything at the same time. But I agree with Grinnell. We do it joyfully. Joyfully. We gain, friends. We don't lose a thing. We gain everything. 